0: This is a special episode of the FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call the Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for another edition of the hashtag FemSquire series. Is Shupti Bhattacharya. She is the chair of the family law department at Hill Wallach in New Jersey. Welcome, Shupti. Hi, Christina. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited because I have been nagging you for some time now to come on the podcast, and you finally said yes.
1: Oh, we're all really busy, but I'm glad that we're able to make the time to see each other and talk.
0: Yes, likewise. I know you are very busy. So I know that you're a huge fan of the podcast. Actually, I I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've listened, I've listened, I've seen. I think it's exciting that you're doing this because I know you've been a family law attorney yourself for a very long time, very dedicated. We've had cases together and this is a different
0: avenue. It's exciting. It is. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I I was sort of busting on you about being a fan, but you are a fan. So even better. So you know that I start out every podcast with the same question. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up?
1: So I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania. I thought at first I was going into medicine because everyone in my family um, was in medicine or science. I took one psychology class and I was completely uninterested. I moved down to political science and I thought I could maybe go into politics or something like that. That did not interest me um, at the time. And then I found sociology. So I thought that was going to be the avenue. Um, I thought helping people was really where my calling was. And I eventually thought I was going to go to social work um, for a master's degree. And then my mom said that you really can't live on that because the salary for social workers is not enough to really have a person live um, in New Jersey on uh, a, a single salary. And her goal in life was to always make me and my three sisters be able to live independently. She wanted us to all get married like a traditional Indian daughter should, But she was very practical because my parents, um, unfortunately, grew up very poor in India after both of their parents had passed away early in their youth. And so she was always about independent woman, be independent, live independently. You never know what will happen in life. She'd always say, even if your father or I'm sorry, your um, spouse were to pass because she'd say you can rely on your spouse, um, you have to sustain yourself. So law school became the recommended course. And that's how I ended up going to law school. So
0: you listened to your mom. Yeah. Mom was very wise. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, I know that you were very close to your mom and you lost your mom recently. And um, I'm really sorry about that because she sounds really cool. I wish I could have interviewed her.
1: Yeah. And she loved to talk to people. She would always say, I'm so shy. I don't know what to say. My English isn't good. And she was fluent, hundred percent fluent, but you'd get her talking about anything related to women's rights really, and related to, um, independence and she could just go on and on and the wisdom I would hear from her giving to my friends I was like I didn't get that piece of information but um, she was she really knew what she was talking about and you know supporting yourself as a woman and um, knowing that friends family and everyone will be there but not necessarily at the times that you need so having that within yourself is really really important so I get it from her
0: well that's sort of how you find out who your friends are right is You know, there's a lot of Facebook memes going around something about, you know, be, be careful, pay attention to who's clapping when you're successful. (laughs) It's not always the people that you would think would be clapping. Right. Yeah. A lot of people are missing sometimes. Yeah. Um, but your mom sounds like she was really progressive for, for the time and place that she lived.
1: I think she was, she was very silent in her um, communications with my dad and the actual South Asian community. But I think in her heart, she was progressive. She wanted to be um, college educated, but she grew up at a time when her father passed when she was in her early teens. Her mom had a sixth grade education and her brother was the one they were going to invest in. It was, he's going to college, he can get a job. It was the 1950s and girls didn't get um, educations because where were you going to work, even if you got that? So she ended up working at a transistor radio factory for Philips. Um, this is just past World War II. Uh, England had been uh, colonizing India for 400 years, I guess at that point, 1947, colonial India ended. So people talk about like World War II, my family's experience was India, World War II, where the British um, were ruling, Japan bombing India was a question. It wasn't about Europe for my family's background. But she would talk about how her grandmother was in disbelief when she talked about some friend of hers that was an engineer. And she was like, Girls aren't engineers. That's not possible. What do you mean? And I was laughing. And she said, I know, like, my young grandmother didn't believe that. And look, your sister is a physicist, your other's a doctor, you're a lawyer, your other's an epidemiologist. Like, her desire to have us be the opposite of what she thought was possible was really, really amazing to me, frankly, because she wasn't allowed to do it, literally not allowed to go to school. She also was a great singer and, um, she wanted to get a radio contract when she was a teenager, but her mother wouldn't allow that either because of the, um, I don't know how to say it nicely. There was, I guess, a lot of sexism and danger for women, because if you were in music, you would have to leave the home and travel and there was no male to travel with her. So she would, go off and and be taken advantage of. And that was the assumption, whether it's true or not. Um, So the music industry would have taken away her virtue for lack of a better way of putting it. And her mother said, absolutely not. So she never had the career that she wanted in anything really.
0: Oh, well, who who knows what she would have become if she had been able to pursue all those opportunities. She had a great
1: voice, absolutely great voice. She was a great singer. So she had a great, um, a great singer, great cook. She had a lot of artistic skills
0: did did you did you I was just about to ask you if you inherited the singing
1: no I like dancing so music is in my heart but I cannot sing I can draw stick figures that are lopsided it's just not good
0: well you have your own special skills and talents (laughs) Shubdi so somewhere yeah so did is she recorded anywhere singing I don't think so. Maybe hmm. there's a set tape
1: somewhere, but I don't think so. In my mind, I've got it recorded. I used to listen to her singing while she was cooking. It was my time with her cuz she was so busy. That's how I learned to cook. I would sit on the kit- the kitchen counter and just watch her cook cuz she wasn't she's one of those a little of this and a pinch of that. There was no recipes. So I learned to cook by watching and then listening to her sing or in the morning when she would pray. She prayed in the morning and then the evening and during that time I would listen to her a lot. So
0: are you first generation?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My parents were both born in India. My dad um, left for Germany where he got his PhD in the fifties. And then they were engaged in India um, by, well, his parents were gone by the time he was 10. So he had met my grandmother, my mom's mom. They were engaged before he left. And then when she passed, he sent for her. And then she got a job at Phillips in Germany and came over, literally flew over, married him the next day. Like they were not together at all because you don't do that. So 1961, she went over to Germany, they moved to England, San Francisco, went back to um, India. And then communism was coming up in India at that time. And they thought that my dad was a CIA agent because they had money. There were a couple of car bombs that they attempted to kill him, which obviously lived that way. Um, So after a couple of those things happening, they moved back to the United States where my dad was uh, trained in veterinary medicine. And he had been at Creighton University in Omaha before they actually left between San Francisco and going to India um, because it's cattle country. So veterinary medicine. Um, So he moved back there with the family. And that's where I was born.
0: So how did you end up here? Um,
1: He was with a company that they were doing sex selection research. So if you want a boy, you can have one. If you want a girl, you can have one. And the company was here in New Jersey. There was one in Nashville, Tennessee that was recruiting him as well. And uh, he and my mom told the story of how um, they had dinner, everything was agreed upon. And then at the very end, they were like, well, you know, we're not going to have dinner with you because we don't do that. You know, you're brown and we're white and we can't do that. This is 1981. And he said, well, I'm not bringing my four girls here if that's the case. And my parents had suffered a lot of prejudice over time. Um, but it was so blatant that it was said that way that they decided they weren't going to go there and it was Princeton or Nashville. And that's how I ended up not being a Southern (laughs) bell.
0: I was six. (laughs) I can't see you being a Southern bell. I don't know. I I don't know. I I like you the way you are. It could have had an accent. You never know. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. You would have given it your own flair for sure. (laughs) But I can't even believe that that was something that happened in 1981. Yeah, well, it's still happening
1: today. I don't think racism goes anywhere.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem like. It seems like it just kind of burrowed underground for a little while, and you know, was sort of hidden. And well, I don't want to get into politics. And then a certain individual <laughs> made people feel a little more comfortable expressing it. <laughs> that that's all I'll say. Um, but was it difficult? I mean, for you growing up you're like the first American, right? And as we know, we do things differently here. It's more permissive. Uh-huh. Did your parents have a hard time? Or was there like a weird dichotomy for you, you know, being at school with a lot of American grown kids and then going home, were they kind of resistant to the to the yeah. new culture?
1: So it, it's unique for me because I my oldest sister is 11 years older than me. So the first two were two years apart. They grew up sort of differently than me and my third sister, who's five years older than me. But we grew up sort of in two pairs. It was much, much more conservative for the older two. But even with me, it was conservative. And my dad would say, when the doors to this house close, you're in India. We speak only in Bengali. We are Hindu. We don't act American. We don't talk like Americans. And it was a very conservative household. But it didn't make a lot of sense to me because the traditions of India and the conservatism were not going to get us anywhere outside the doors of the house in Princeton growing up. It was, you know, we have to be very independent. We have to be very assertive. And as women, especially, you can't be quiet and timid and just expect things are going to be handed to you. You have to excel. You have to be confident. You have to do all the things that every woman in this world knows they have to do to achieve things. So I listened, I was respectful, but I kind of ignored it to the extent that um, my sisters listened and they didn't play sports, for example. They didn't really do student government. They didn't do a lot of the things that I said, I'm going to do this because I have to do this. And that means not coming home right after school at 3.15. I'm going to play sports. So I just bring the you know physical form that you have to fill out before you do sports and said, mom, you need to sign this and then drive me to the doctor because preseason starts in August and she just did it. And maybe it was because my parents were older uh, my dad was 50 when I was born. My mom was 38. So they were three kids down. They just were tired of saying no, I guess. Um, but I was able to get that kind of uh, duality going where I was much more very conservative Indian, very Americanized than my sisters. My sisters were like, "How did you get okay to play sports?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "I gave her the form." I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was
0: gonna say, were they jealous? Like, it's not fair. We didn't get to do that. Why to shoot? People? Well, I think that's most households anyway. When there's another kid that's a lot younger. Yeah,
1: yeah. They, a lot. They were kind of like, "Well, you're the baby. That's why." But I also was the one that stayed with my parents. Like, they all went off to college, lived in different cities, traveled the world. Um, I never did that. I wanted to go abroad during college to London. There is a a specific program at the um, uh, SOAS, South Asian School of Oriental and Asian Studies. That's what it was. Um, in London. And one of my majors was South Asian studies. And I wanted to see the library there because it's the largest collection of South Asian literature outside of South Asia. The second largest was at the University of Pennsylvania. So I was like, this is awesome. I want to go. And my mother wouldn't let me because she said, your father has heart problems. You're the only one that's close by. My sisters were in New York City and California. And I thought, well, a trip from London to Jersey and California to Jersey is the same. And my New York City sister is there. But the reliance that she had on me at that point was so strong that she was afraid. But I was like, look, guys, I'm sacrificing stuff. So I got to play sports, but I got to stay with mom and dad. You got to travel over the world. So, to things that you do, I think, when you're from um, an immigrant family where the family reliance is so, the parent reliance on children is so deep and the, the sense of duty is so deep that, um, I still have not been to London. I will do it one day, but I I was just going
0: to ask you if if you ever got (laughs) to see the library.
1: (laughs) No, but, uh, through the state bar association, we kept talking about trips and there were these bombs a few years ago. So they kept canceling that destination. Um, but I'll get there eventually. I just, I don't think that it was a, a sacrifice in the least in the end, because of the connection that I was able to have with my parents as a result of that relationship. But I think that we do, um, I did get a lot of different things out of being so different like i think of myself as completely bicultural as a result of growing up that way
0: was your dad supportive of you going to college or your sister's went to college because it seems inconsistent to me that he wanted you to be traditional but then at the same time pursue your education and especially with law it's a male dominated field yeah. well
1: Every field we're in is male dominated. My first sister is an astrophysicist and she worked for NASA for 20 years. Uh, My dad was always like, well, my daughters are like girls are, he was very conservative. He believed that men were superior to women, but his daughters were superior to everyone. (laughs) That was his attitude. (laughs) And so we were like, okay, whatever, dad, none of this makes sense. Uh, My second sister is a physician. My third is an epidemiologist. We all have graduate degrees. I'm the least educated, actually. I, I tell all my sisters, like, you guys are... The most educated I have a bachelor's degree and three years of graduate that's it they all have multiple masters PhDs MDs um, but my dad didn't see it that way like that we were inferior because we were his kids so an exception sense. for you yeah yeah and for me being a lawyer was um, disturbing to him because he did not like lawyers he had a lot of legal trouble in the us I think part of it was he was very Um, he had his own way of doing things in life and he wanted to succeed on his terms. Um, Stubbornness is a good word for my dad. And so he had legal trouble with contracts and the science that he wanted to um, produce and and the research he wanted to do. And so whenever lawyers would come into play, he would have trouble and he thought it was always them, whether it was them or not. You know, then there was also the racial factor that often happened. My father was very dark skinned and he just would always encounter a lot of stuff he was often called the N-word. He was dealt with just very badly. I mean, we were living in places like Omaha, Nebraska. So there was not a lot of racial diversity and no one knew what Hinduism was. People didn't know what Indians were. Um, so he didn't like the idea of me being a lawyer because he thought lawyers are liars. And-
0: well, he's not the only one. So I don't know <laughs> if we can blame that on his culture. Yeah, so I, I grew up sort
1: of, you know, I my purpose was always to help people. I wanted to be a lawyer because... I thought it was a greater platform than social work. And I, listening to my mom and thinking about it and meeting people that were doing this work, um, I realized it's a greater platform from which I can help people. And then my first mentor in college in an internship um, helped me with that. And she helped me see that it was a public interest um, law firm in Philadelphia that I was amazed at how many people we were helping. It's mostly family law, landlord, tenant stuff. But the, the faces of people that would light up when you would get them not evicted or fix their water problem in their apartment. And I would just look at them like, well, we just filled out some forms. We, I would learn the process, help them with the forms. And I was a college student, but it amazed me the power of a little bit of knowledge, helping people that had no access what it could do. And so, yeah.
0: And the gratitude. That's always nice. When there's gratitude. Yes. I mean, (laughs) speaking as divorce lawyers, we don't always get gratitude, even though we understand that we're helping people because we understand the context of divorce and you know the court system. And people don't really always understand that because Uh they don't do that for a living. So sometimes there's not gratitude. There's not a recognition that things could have been worse. Yeah.
1: I think people are in the worst part of their lives when they come to us and- At the end, sometimes they recognize and a lot of times I'll hear from clients later or even at the end. You probably remember when you're actively practicing at the end, they're they're smiling. Their faces are bright and they remember the first conversation you have with them where it feels terrible now. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but give it a few months. You'll be a different person. You will feel the sense of freedom. We're going to get you there. That's why we're doing this together. Um, That end image that I create for them in the beginning. It, that's why I want to help them through it. And they're like, you're full of nonsense. I don't believe you, it's never gonna happen. You don't know my spouse. This is the hardest case you've ever seen. My spouse is the craziest narcissist you've ever met. And you know, you have to let them work through those feelings, get them a therapist as well, so they can really work it out at a copay hourly rate versus our hourly rates.
0: Yes, um, yes, I agree 100% with everything you just said. There you go, yeah. So when, you're, years doing this. so, when your mom said, and you still look so young, I don't know how you do that. Oh, well, thank you. So, when your mom said law, were you thinking, like, really, mom, I don't want to do that? Or were you enthusiastic about it? You know, honestly,
1: I heard so much trash talk about lawyers from my parents. I thought, are you serious? I'm allowed to do that. Because they would also make fun of me when I would argue with them. I argued all the time as a kid, and it was a negative concept. So, I thought, Now you're giving me permission to do the thing I'm not allowed to do. I'm I'm allowed to be that. I was so curious about it. Um, And we had a family friend that had been um, the neighbors I babysat for forever. We're both attorneys. So I asked them about it. I did my research. I talked to this. I got an internship with this law firm. And it was like an opening for me and something that I thought was really cool. I wanted to trailblaze. And I was nervous because no one in my family had done this. And I didn't really know who to find, but then I realized I can find people in my community. You know, the neighbor that I did the babysitting for, this person I got an internship with. Um, I went to career services in my college and asked them to find, you know, was there any other avenue I could go to? They told me, go to the law school on campus and see if there's someone. Penn Law is not really interested in talking to an undergrad like me who wasn't really looking to go to Penn Law because my grades in LSAT wasn't really high enough to do that. Um, but it was, you know, it was an exciting time for me as time has progressed. I've just found ways to find other mentors. I wish I had more in-house mentors like in my family and in my circle, but I have built that circle up. And with that support, it's been a really exciting time. I I joke with people that I don't really have a lot of friends that are lawyers, but then I think I do actually professionally. I'm a lot like you, I've got friends that are lawyers, but we don't, kind of act like lawyers, like in the traditional way. Like people probably say, you're not a lawyer. They don't think you're a lawyer because you don't act like a lawyer, whatever that means.
0: Boring and stuffy. Yeah, yeah, that and and snobby and
1: arrogant and pushy. And those are not the characteristics that I ever want to convey to anyone. And I don't like those characteristics in my colleagues. So the circle that I've learned from, none of those people are like that. Um, from the State Bar Association, those are the main people that I've really gotten the most... Incredible guidance from, and those that I admire from there, they're not at all like that. I would, you would never think that they're lawyers if you were to see them out and about. And sometimes you can kind of tag a lawyer. You see them out, you see them somewhere like in a bar or something. You're like, oh, they must be a lawyer, an accountant, a doctor. And then you ask, and you find out, and think, I get ten points. (laughs) I figured it out.
0: I always find the cops. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe you want to find the cops you know like, <laughs> you're looking for them. Yeah, that it's the haircut, I guess. I don't know, Part <laughs> or, the or the uniform. Haircut. Yeah, yeah. Um, so could your mom have gone to college as an adult? I mean, was that something she wanted to do?
1: So that's a dichotomy. Um, the dynamic of my parents' marriage, she wanted to, she started taking some community college classes, and my dad just didn't want it because he's a Women don't go to college. My daughters do, but you don't. And it was an actual thing between the two of them. So she took some classes. She wanted to, um, she took basic like typing classes, like really basic stuff to get herself just a better job. Um, she took some training because she worked for the state health department in like um, medical coding or something like that. He didn't even like that. He was a very, very conservative person, which I only come came to learn more about after he passed about um, 13 years ago. After he passed, she would tell me this stuff. And family friends would tell me this stuff. Even after she's passed, she passed last summer. People have told me this stuff. Um, It was always her dream to go to college. And that's why I think my sisters and I are hyper-educated. I think there's like 13 degrees between us. It's like stupid for people. We don't need that many degrees. But um, yeah, she wanted to. She really wanted to. And I think she would have been an excellent student.
0: Well, I'm sure she was very proud of you, all of you. Did she say that?
1: Um, In the very beginning, no. All through our childhood, no. I think as she became, as she said, more Americanized, she would say, I'm proud of you. Um, through friends, I found out, and through my aunts, I found out she was very, very proud of us. But it's not a thing that you say in our culture because it's assumed. And it's almost like it would put the evil eye on us. If she said she's proud, then it would eliminate the pride and it would put, you know, bad omens and things would happen.
0: You'll get too comfortable. That too.
1: Yeah. Like I need to challenge you. If I tell you, then you'd be like, oh good, I'm good now. And I looked at her like, how could I ever believe that? Like society doesn't let me think that Like we can't assume that we can rest on our laurels. There's always someone out there ready to knock you out of the knees.
0: So, yeah. you got to wow. Yeah, like like Tanya, not just Tanya Harding. <laughs> People like Tanya Harding. Yeah. I I have no doubt that she was proud of all of you. I mean, for her to have this burning desire to go to college that never got to be fulfilled and then to see her daughters achieve at such a high level. I there's know. no way she wasn't so proud of that. Yeah. She
1: had a big smile on her face. So she had Alzheimer's disease and that takes away some ability to kind of manage your emotions. And when we would talk about any kind of positive stuff, she would just light up and glow like any kind of, um, she would refer to us by our careers when she could speak. And as the speaking would went away, the nurses would talk about us like your daughter who's a doctor is here. And she would light up and it was just she had, I think that she really did understand it and and what we were doing. So I think it was good, good stuff.
0: I wish I had spent more time with your mom when she was around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you
1: met her, I think in Paris, right? I've met
0: her. I've met yeah. her. Yeah. That was an
1: awesome trip for her. She, so they lived in Germany, but she'd never been to Paris. And when I told her I had this trip, she's like, I'm going. And I'm like, mom, it's a state bar trip. Why do you want to go? She's like, I've never seen the Eiffel tower. So I said, all right, come along.
0: So So cool. Yeah. So would you say she was one of the certainly the more influential people in your life? Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted
1: to make her proud, but I think my um, moral code and what drives me, my ethics is very much from her because she was very religious, but she had this um, attitude of always do right because that's what ultimately matters in life. And that can never go away. And that was driven for her by religion and God. But she said, no matter what happens to life, stay the right course. Don't let people distract you from that because that will always guide you. God will guide you. Your morality will guide you whether I'm here or not. She always had this fatalistic thing that I'm going to be gone before anything ever happens of importance in your life. And I thought, I hope not. I hope good things happen while you're here still. But she always had this attitude of um, you know, make sure that you stay on the right path. And if there's ever been questions of ethics and what's right and wrong, I, I always follow my gut and it drives me. There's no question I would do something unethical. If there's a you know, question when, when adversaries claim I've done something unethical, it doesn't even really make me angry because I think like it's not even possible I would do that. It, it's not a question. I wouldn't lie, cheat, steal, because it, it's yeah. just not part of who I am.
0: Well, you're the one who's got to lay your head down on your pillow at night and know who you are, what you've done. Yeah. I think unfortunately not everybody thinks about that though. I know. I know. I mean, my mom's like similar in that way. She's extremely honest and, and I'm very honest and people are like, but you're a lawyer. (laughs) How can you be honest? And I know, I don't know. I, I have that quality too, that I could not go to sleep at night knowing that, you know, I did something really bad.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a way to be a lawyer. And I get what they're saying. There's things that we have to do as lawyers where we're defending someone who may or may not have committed the crime and divorce law's different. It's not necessarily a crime, but they've done stuff that we have to sort of walk around the truth and not tell the whole truth. That doesn't make it immoral because there's, they say like his truth, her truth, and the real truth. What actually happened is all about perspective. And understanding and respecting that as well is a big part of it and seeing the world from everyone's perspectives, which was something else that she taught me that, you know, the world is not just one way. Everyone thinks of, you know, the way you see it on television is how it happened. Absolutely not. It's the way something happens in the same moment is perceived in such different ways that what we do is convey our client's perspective of something and it's like night and day. It's amazing sometimes when you think of the same conversation like an audio recording is interpreted differently by two different people. It's true. It's like, how can you, we were both there, video, audio. That's not what you say happened. It's just the way that it
0: is. Well, yeah. I mean, I've heard that, that you could get several witnesses at a car accident and they're all going to have a different version of what happened.
1: Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Crash? I think it was. I think Halle Berry was in it.
0: I don't think I saw that. It was the
1: same, um, if I'm remembering the right film, it was the same car crash, but it was from completely different perspectives of what happened. And it's the same experience in life happens with different people and how they see the world. I mean, we we don't, we're not talking about politics, but that's how the world is right now. Everyone sees the same thing so differently because it comes from your heart and what you've seen in life and experienced.
0: It's so true. That's why I'm trying to be less judgy. I'm trying to be more compassionate to other people that, and i and I always thought I was, but I think there's always room to be more so uh-huh. because you never know what kind of day someone's had. You don't know what experiences they've had in their lives that um, you know make them perceive something a certain way, whether yeah. it's negative or positive. Um you know, I've had my own experiences that make me look at certain things maybe a different way than you do. Um, it's hard. We're all humans. So we have our reactions to things, but I'm trying to be more compassionate when someone else has a difference in perception.
1: Yeah. I like listening all the way through now more than I used to. The patience has come about. Like, I used to be a lot more reactive to someone start saying something that differs from my opinion. And I think, no, I have to tell you my thought on this immediately. But if you listen to the whole statement or thought process, I'll learn from what they're saying. And I still may disagree, but it helps you to figure out what they're talking about and then share experiences and maybe walk away still disagreeing. But hearing what other people have to say teaches so much about life experience. It teaches me about myself and what I'm going through. And I think it creates a lot more growth within people, relationships, communities that we need a lot more of, I think it's made me a better lawyer to be able to do that, to be able to hear different perspectives differently now and be less judgy because we all have opinions, especially as lawyers. We have very strong opinions. We're advocates. That's what we're trained to do. But you can't really be a good advocate if you can't be a good listener. It doesn't really, it doesn't make a round whole person.
0: I agree with that. I'm not sure you can really be a good anything if you can't be a good listener. Mm -hmm. So many of us, and I'm I'm guilty of it, wh- when we're talking to someone, we're listening with the idea of what are we going to say next and not even always listening fully. So even though I may let you speak, because interrupting people is a bad habit that I have. I'm trying to be better. <laughs> but even if I'm letting you speak fully, a lot of times I'll realize that I'm being a little distracted because... I'm not totally hearing everything because I'm too busy thinking about what I'm going to say next. And I think it's natural to do that. Um, There's another uh, little poster going around Facebook. I call it Facebook wisdom. Mm -hmm. And it says something like, when you're you're talking, you're not learning anything. If you actually listen to someone, you Uh may learn something. Yeah. Yeah. And I find them to be true. Are you learning more by doing these podcasts? You know what? I have learned that everybody has a story Uh and you, we make a lot of judgments about people, you know, just looking at them, right? Uh Like I see you're an Indian woman, you're, um, you're an attorney, you're a professional. Uh, So I can make a lot of judgments about that, but that doesn't really tell me who you are. Yeah. You know, or what you think, or what your feelings and your opinions about things. And there's so much more to people than just what you see on that really superficial level. Right. And and I think it's only natural to make judgments about people. We do it all the time. I mean, I'm not gonna when I go to the grocery store, I'm not gonna sit down and have a 90-minute conversation <laughs> about their their lives. Oh, I although I, I would love to because I'm naturally nosy, but um, you know, I guess it's something we just have to do to survive and get along in the world. Uh-huh. But to answer your question, I love sitting down with people like the way we're doing and really getting an opportunity to dig a little deeper and find out what they've been through in their lives uh-huh. that shape who they are now and their opinions. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it helps to actually interact with people when you know a little about their background because it tells you where they come from, what makes them Well, you may never understand what makes them tick, but getting where people come from, I think, helps to explain a bit of their background, their life experiences, um, especially in the competitive world of being attorneys, because somehow we absorb our clients' woes and the adversarial nature gets worse and worse unless you become friends. And joining any bar association began because I had heard from mentors that you should always be able to go out and have lunch in the middle of a trial with the person on the other side of the table, because that's how you're going to get through this. Your clients are going to come and go, but you're going to be part of this association forever. And there shouldn't be this kind of competitive, angry fighting. You're all part of the same purpose, which is justice for society. And those that mock that or or don't believe in that, I just don't understand, like, isn't that what we're supposed to be here for? Helping people with justice. That's what I think lawyers are supposed to be doing.
0: I totally agree with you. And I think that the more effective attorneys do that, Mm -hmm. I I think, especially with family law. I mean, like you said earlier, a person going through a divorce is going through really a traumatic experience. It's a death of marriage. It is. And I've often said jokingly, but I really believe it, that people who are getting a divorce are probably grieving more than someone at a funeral because the dynamic is different the, the person that you're in this situation with isn't dead yeah. they're, they're moving on with life without you yeah and that's a different kind of hurt a different kind of pain
1: i think it's a, it's that plus it's a mark of your own failure even if you didn't cause the divorce maybe there's some fault on your part but i often hear from people that i feel like i failed and It always takes two people to make a marriage work, but is it personal failure? Maybe it just wasn't right. And, you know, try to coach people through this emotional part of it. But that's part of the thing. Like when someone dies, you could not have helped them. Their their life has ended. Their body's gone. Now their spirit's gone and you're burying them or or cremating, whatever it might be. But in a divorce, you're right. They're still sitting there. And you're still sitting here, but one part of you is now just gone. Everything you built up together is gone. The end of a relationship, um, and then if you have kids, it's so much harder because now the kids are still there as a constant reminder of what you had, and it's um, and it's you different. still
0: have to co-parent with the other person. So it's not like you get to just shut the door and and it's shut, and that part of your life is gone because yeah. it's still sort of there. Yeah.
1: They say, if you you get through, I think eight or 10 years of doing this, you can do this as an attorney, but so many people just don't wanna do it because that watching that over and over again, it's like, for me, I could not have been a doctor because I couldn't watch death over and over. And I had said, maybe a dermatologist would have, okay. But that's probably it because I can't watch that over and over the suffering of family members and the individual passing, it just isn't in me. And then my doctor friends are like, I could not watch divorce over and over that people are horrible to each other. They're how, how do you do that? And I, I don't really know where that comes from, but that strength is I don't see just that part of their suffering. It's I want to get you past the suffering. That's the hurdle I'm trying to get them over. And the, the feeling I have knowing that that's happening watching that transformation, helping people is really what makes it feel so I guess able to get through those days where it's like, if one more person yells at me, <laughs> And I have to say, I understand you're upset. Let's talk after you have a chance to take a few deep breaths and think about what you want to do next.
0: And I, I love there. that. Say that again. I got to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I say it every day, all the time.
1: But yeah, it, it's, uh, it's not easy stuff that we do.
0: Well, I've been practicing technically 17 years. Can't even believe that. Went by so fast. I don't remember exactly when I started to really become disillusioned with it, and you know experiencing the burnout that a lot of family law attorneys experience, yeah, but I had to withdraw from practice i which I did slowly over time, and now I practice very little, and i as you know, I manage the firm, but you know i I think for me, the burnout was all the super charged emotion uh-huh. and, you know, negative emotion, you know, people, um, really coming from a place of fear, but their reaction to that is to try to hurt the other person. Yeah. And they really have to come to the realization themselves. Like what we're talking about is, is how they, their lives can be better. They can move on. They will move on and they will be okay. I mean, I think that's really what they're concerned about, but they can't see it at the time.
1: No, they're blinded.
0: So while they're in that place, it's not a fun place to be and not for any of us. No,
1: it's unhealthy, really. And I think that the mental health being unhealthy causes the physical lack of health. And I've tried to like learn from clients what they do to get through it and then tell other clients about it. I try to make them understand through sharing the stories of clients that this is what other people have done. Maybe it will help you. And I think for the most part, it's worked. I know there's always going to be some people that almost thrive in misery and they don't know how to function outside of it. So no matter what you say, it's almost like, don't take away my my, comfort blanket of misery, I have to keep it. I'm like Linus with that blanket, like don't take it from me or I don't know how to function. I'm used to being abused and being unhappy, even if I inflict it upon myself because this takes away that thing, it's my freedom. But the clients that cry at the divorce hearing, when that's your moment of, okay, I'm free from this pain that I've been going through for months and months versus you should be maybe not smiling. It's not a happy day necessarily. There are those that celebrate and like run out of the courtroom happy screaming. But you know those that are crying at that hearing are the ones I think that really are attached to some form of misery. They just can't give up. And that's a much deeper men, uh, mental issue, I think.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, there's there's people too that will hang on to a death of a person. Yeah. Decades. Yeah. As, as though it just happened. And it's kind of similar. They, they can't let go of the grief. Uh-huh. So what do you say to people when they get divorced, when you go to the uncontested hearing? Uh-huh. What do you say? And the reason I'm asking is because when I was a young attorney, I used to say, congratulations. <laughs> But just because I didn't know what to say, but then I realized, you know, that doesn't seem like the right thing to say. You mean
1: after the the judge says,
0: y- yeah, you done. know, rubber stamps that judgment of divorce?
1: I think it depends on the client. I do try to say congratulations, but I do it with like a hand on their shoulder as a comfort, and a hand on the document, and it it, it really depends on the client. But for the most part, I actually do say congratulations that you're done with this. Yeah. congratulations that you finished and you survived this or something like that. Um, I had a friend recently who did his own divorce would not get help from me because I don't really know what and why, but um, he would talk about it occasionally ask my opinion. And I'd say, if we talk about this, we're going to end up arguing because you don't like my advice because he wanted to do it his way. But at the end, when he finished, I said, well, congratulations, you're done. And he was really upset about that. And he said, this isn't something to be happy about. And I said, okay, I mean, congratulations, you're done. Because yes. this has been a grueling process. I know you didn't want your marriage to be over. So I think you have to be sensitive to that fact. And every client is different. Some people are genuinely excited. Like I've had clients that have like plans for a flight to the Caribbean the next day. They are so elated. They are done. They're going to go on vacation. Um, the clients that changed their names are like, where do I go next? Where's the social security office? I'm going to get a new passport. Um But yeah, I think the sensitivity to individuals is what you got to look
0: at. Yeah, I, it's, it's like, I'm never, I feel like I'm never good at that. You know, even if I, if someone experiences a death in their family or, you know, there's some medical issue, I'm like the worst, I'm going to start calling you Shoopy. Like, what do I say? I don't know what to say. You know, I hate saying dumb things like, oh, they're in a better place now. I always want to be like, really? How do you know? (laughs) How do you know they're in a better I I certainly don't know if I know the right thing
1: to say. I feel awkward about it myself often. But, you know, I think just knowing that someone cares about you is what the person receiving it is, you know, just a phone call or a text about anything from friends. When, like when my mom was um, getting sicker and sicker, like she got coronavirus last year and then everything got worse. And then she passed. Um, Just hearing from people. It wouldn't yeah. I probably don't even remember what I was reading. I was just in such a state of trying to figure stuff out. Nobody was around because nobody could be. All of my family was not here. But hearing from people like that yeah. the words themselves didn't really make a difference. So
0: um well that's good to know. Um I usually I'll, what I'll do is I'll just say, you know, I I'm terrible at at this. I don't know what to say, but I'm thinking of you and yeah, you know, sending yeah. love,
1: sending hugs. Yeah. And as the attorney, I think that we've been with them for such a long time that they don't really, they're not offended by things that we say. It really is just a, I'm glad that we're through the process. And congratulations are in order for surviving this because you're a strong person for getting through it.
0: It's kind of an intimate relationship that we have with clients.
1: Yeah. You got to keep that barrier between them because sometimes they want to become friends and. In your social world, and you you can't be seen as a human to them. Like how when kids don't see their teachers as humans, they're their teacher. Yeah, and they see you at the grocery store, and they get excited. Like I don't yeah. like seeing clients out in the community. It becomes very awkward. The other night I was out, I saw an old client with her kids. I did not want to see the kids. They were just eyeing me, and I thought I knew the kids. I've been told about me by the dad and there's a whole thing in the case that they were told about. And the judge had to tell the dad stop talking about the case. But the kids are like 18 and 20 right now. 10 years ago, I was fighting over who gets custody. And it just is awkward. It's really awkward to have these kids staring at you. And I'm like, I didn't do it. Your parents are the, <laughs> the problem. Yeah.
0: And you know what? You don't know, you know, going back to something we just talked about, you don't know how each of those children experienced it Uh because they had their own experience that was completely separate from each other and from Uh the parents, from you. Yeah, Nobody really knows how they personally experienced it or what they remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they weren't terribly young. They were, I guess like 11 and 13 or 10 and 12 or something, but they just, the whole night after she came over to say hi... She said, I want you to meet my kids. And I thought, well, I guess they're old enough. It's not a big deal. But they kept looking over all night. I wanted to move
0: my table. But, you know. Maybe they were th- in awe of you, Shoopdi. You don't know. Maybe that was it. <laughs> Maybe they were like, wow, how does that woman do that for a living? <laughs> or, hey, look at this fabulous woman attorney. She's awesome. That would be great. Awesome. That'd be great. You never I, know.
1: I hope they were happy. Yeah. They yeah. seem to be okay. But I just, I kept thinking like, why, do, why am I, every time I turn, they're looking. Or they talk
0: about you in therapy. I don't know. know. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I do talk about a lot is I really wish there was a way to, we we need to start a movement, you and I, and and, and enlist other people. That divorce isn't a failure. I wish there was some way for other people to look at it other than as a failure. Uh Because it's almost a little crazy I hope my boyfriend's not watching this, that we really expect people to be with the same person their entire life and to always be super happy and always on the same page. Uh That's That's expecting an awful lot. Do you think
1: so? I think it is. I think it is a cultural thing for a lot of people because in some cultures you get married and that is permanent and it doesn't matter. You can't divorce yourself from your siblings you can't divorce yourself from your spouse. Um, In some parts of Hinduism, they believe that your spouse is actually your other half of your soul that is divided upon your birth. So getting married means finding the other half of you physically, literally your soul mate and person. So getting divorced means to cut off your arm or something. Um, Practically speaking, I agree. How do you spend your entire life with one person? That's so hard, but making it work is a question of, both of you making it work. And that's where, like, I have about 70% of my clients who are South Asian. So the cultural aspect of it weighs very heavily. And why do they stay so long? Why do they put up with the nonsense, whether it's men or women, because the plethora of things that happen to make a divorce happen, as you know, like we could talk for hours about the weird things that we've heard, the common things that we've heard. Um, But it's two people have to be involved to make it work and to put up with someone's behavior even if you're bending over so far backwards that you could, you know, snap in half, if your spouse isn't willing to cooperate with you, you're never going to be able to make that marriage work. And that's where I think what you're talking about makes the difference So, how can you possibly make something work when the other person has no desire to. They're going to always violate your trust. They're always going to violate your agreed rules of marriage, um, the cultural rules, even like in India, the traditional marriage is the husband's going to work, the wife is going to stay at home. But if the husband's going to work but really not make any money or gamble it all away or have girlfriends or all this stuff, what is she supposed to put up with? Or she's going to stay at home but never take care of the kids, never keep the house up. Like If these rules aren't engaged improperly or fairly, how is that marriage going to work well? Everyone's going to be miserable and then the violence starts and that's just intolerable. You know, people talk about, well, he's my husband. And, you know, so I don't feel like I should say anything because then my kids won't have a father as if then you should put up with being physically abused because that's not cultural. And sometimes people say, well, culturally these things happen. That, that really disturbs me. Um, yeah. so I like the fact that I'm South Asian and I can say that is not our culture because they can take that for me as truth. When I say I grew up in a conservative household, I know what is right and wrong. And a conservative proper family does not allow violence. That is not okay. And they look at me like, maybe it's the first time someone has said that to them, but they need to know that it's okay to stand up for yourself as a woman um, or a man, because I've had plenty of men, especially they're embarrassed to talk about it because they're saying my, you know, I'm a man. My my partner can't hit me because everyone knows then I'm a weak person. And that's not true. It's not about weakness. It's domination.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's about power.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very sad. Those are the hardest cases, I think, when they involve that kind of stuff.
0: They are, but and in, in coaching circles, they always say you have to you have to go where your client is. And you have to start where they are. Uh-huh. So it, it's helpful to them. I'm sure that you understand the culture and you can understand better what they're thinking and the context that they're operating in. Uh-huh. Because it's easy to, to pass judgment as, you know, strong women, that the strong women that we are, and say, well, how on earth are you in that situation? You need to leave. As though just saying that is going to make them do it and say, <laughs> gosh, you're right. What, what? How have I been staying there all this time? Yeah. but and, and that's where it's hard for me. It's hard for me sometimes to... Um, To really understand, you know, how can you stay in a situation like that? Mm -hmm. Like how? How? Yeah.
1: Well, the way I frame it is, I I first always give them like an hour to let them tell the whole story, so they can talk it all out. Because you'll you notice a shift as they tell the story. It's all about blaming themselves for what happened. Like this happened, and it was because I did this. And it's a lot of that. And then it starts shifting to what he did wrong. And then it becomes well. I'm kind of helpless. There's no point in any of this because it's just the way the culture is. And I'm expected to because the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids. And then it's, well, what if the kids were to see two happy parents and separately, like what happens when he's at work and you're at home and the kids are just with you? Are they happy? What if that was like that every day? And I, you know, that's how I generally get them there instead of you need to just leave. Because if they start seeing slowly what it would be like living in separate households, what if your husband traveled all the time and he was never home? What would it be like? And their face lights up like, oh, that'd be so great. Like, okay, so what if he traveled to like another house every day and he lived there every day and the kids got to see him, but then the two of you don't fight anymore. Oh, well, I can't afford that. What if I could help you with that? And then it, it you know, the possibilities are just, so many lies are told to them about the possibilities. Like you try to divorce me, I won't give you any money. You're not getting alimony. I'm taking the kids. All of that stuff is tremendous to give them.
0: And I love the way you pose it as a question yeah, rather than saying, well, I can make sure that you have money or, you know, I can do this or I can do that because it lets, I think it lets their mind start working and thinking, well, I don't know what if she could do that. Yeah. I think it's about empowering
1: people because if you're told to do something, we're strong people. I I don't like being told to do stuff. I like being asked to do stuff and then wondering, and even like from childhood, like, you know, when you want a child to do something, it's okay, do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes? They're going to bed, but they get a choice of now or five minutes. If you're helping people along with that kind of suggestive talk, I think it makes them figure out the answer, but they're thinking that it's their own thought process that gets them there, so they made that decision but you fed it to them. It's, you know, like leading (laughs) testimony and that kind of stuff where you you told them the answer to the question, but they've got to get comfortable with it. Like you can't get a drug addict, right. To get themselves help unless they want it. It's Mm. the same thing because for the the fact that they've gotten to us to the point that they want to get help, that they're in an attorney's office means they're pretty ready, but they don't know all the options that are available and you're, you know, disabusing them of all these lies they've probably been told by who knows how many people. And then there's the family element of, um, of many cultures and many people of, you don't want to be a divorced person. There's the stigma of that. You're not going to have the money. The family won't support you. Um, where do you think you'll live? How are you going to survive on your own? Um, and you know, the idea that there's a whole community of other divorced people that are not only there for each other, but they're just happy. Like, what if you got to sit at home every night and just read a book quietly without screaming and yelling and all that stuff? And they look at me like, what? Every other weekend, if your spouse takes the kids, you could come home and read a book, take a bath. You don't have to cook for anybody. And they're like, oh, like they've never even thought about it as an option.
0: Well, you're sort of giving them permission because we always talk about that in my office, how a lot of times I feel like people, when they come in for a consultation, it's almost like they're looking for permission from somebody. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay for you to get a divorce. It's okay if you're not happy in this relationship anymore and you want to end it.
1: Yeah. Well, they need to hear that sometimes. Like, am I unique? Like we joke kind of like, mine is the worst. You've never seen a worse spouse. They sometimes want to know that. Like, is this normal? What I'm dealing with, is it normal? And sometimes you just got to tell them, no, sometimes it is rare what you see that that comes through the door. But yeah, permission is a big thing that we don't give ourselves in most things in life. And we need some friend, which is what we become to tell them like, it's okay to make this decision because you don't, you deserve
0: better. You have permission to have what you want. Whatever that is, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And this applies to a lot of things, like you said, other areas of life, like if you're at a job you hate, or if you're living someplace you hate, you know, maybe you have the desire to move and be somewhere else. I think so many of us, not just in a divorce context, deny ourselves those things. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We should to be
0: happy. Yeah. Can't we all just get along? Shoopty, are you denying yourself anything?
1: I am. I think the pandemic has denied a lot of people, a lot of things. And um, like one thing I always did was to check my happiness level by traveling every year, not just for work, because I'm lucky that my work and the conferences allow me to travel to great places. But every year, once a year, I will take a trip by myself to the Caribbean for five or six days. And I just float in the water. No one's around. My phone is in the safe like and it recharges me every year. And it helps me to figure out: Am I in the right place? And every year it tells me yes. And it, I come back, recharged, everything is better. Um, and then the other trips with work will often give me a little bit of alone time as well. But I didn't get to do that last year. And so right now I'm feeling the overwhelm of everything that's happened with being, you know, coronavirus, being alone, my mother. Um, so I don't quite frankly feel really happy right now. And I'm trying to evaluate where that all comes from. I love the service I give to clients. I still get plenty of clients that are happy, but there is that burnout that comes from being just in New Jersey. Like the farthest I traveled was across the river to Pennsylvania. I haven't been in New York city since last year. Wow. Really? Yeah. Like I haven't gone anywhere and it's just partly my friends in New York are like, I I can't meet you. I like, I'm, I think a little more risky, like I'll wear my mask and go out places, but nobody's around to meet. So I'm going to go sit at a table by myself in New York and stare at nobody.
0: I'm available, shoot I'll okay. go with you. Okay. Let's keep doing <laughs> don't, it. <then. laughs> don't have to ask me twice.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I haven't done much. And I think that's part of where I'm not sure I'm giving myself everything I need to do. Um, but yeah, I wanna, I've always wanted to write a book. Everyone wants to write a book, but I do want to do that. And talk a little bit about my experiences in the law and um, what it's been like to build a career with no... Background and no like family experience. And how did I kind of figure out how to be a lawyer, how to build a practice? I just decided to leave my job one day as a W 2 employee. And I said, I'm going to join my friend from law school who has a practice and figure it out. And even my mom was like, Are you going to what? Because <laughs> she wanted me to get a government job. That was her dream because her father had a government job. And when he passed, the pension paid for the family. So she always said, Government job, you get pension, you get health insurance. Do this, And I was like, I don't want to be a prosecutor because I don't want to put people in jail. Don't want to be a public defender because I don't. I don't want to be in the AJ's office. I just don't want to do this.
0: Well, your so. mom was very concerned about security. I mean, and even though she was encouraging you to be a go-getter, mm-hmm. she p- part of that was because she wanted you to be secure and yeah. not dependent on anybody.
1: She's very unhappy that I didn't get married. And she's like, you don't have that security. And I would say, well, mom, that's not security. Well, I said, mom, I am a divorce lawyer. So, uh, and she's like, oh, you need to be more patient with people. And she had all these, we would debate this and laugh about it, but she would say, it's a good idea for you to not be um, married until you find the right person for you, because otherwise you will just get divorced and there's no point in it. Um, but security was very important to her because I think for every person it is. And she had experienced so much insecurity in life from her childhood that she wanted that for all of her kids. So two of us are married, two of us aren't. So she had a 50-50 shot of getting it right and (laughs) it worked out pretty well.
0: Did she get some grandkids? Five. Okay, good. So. Yeah. Good. She's all right. You don't need all that pressure on you. No, no, it's fine. She was fine with it. So let's talk a little bit about what you just said that you want to include in your book is this um, career path that you were on. Uh-huh. So you left law school. Did you have an idea, you know, was there like a dream job that you wanted when you were in law school?
1: So at the very end of law school, I was working at the city of Newark and the corporation counsel for the city was um, elevated to the bench. And at her swearing in, I it was the first time I'd ever seen a non-white male as a judge. She's African-American. And I thought for the first time, like, I could be a judge and it hadn't occurred to me as a career path. I thought corporate America, public service, like being a lawyer, doing something, serving clients. And it was the first time I ever thought about it. And then I thought, okay, I first got to get through finals. I got to pass the bar, I got to get a job. Um, But seeing her was the first time I thought that could be something I would love to do. And the idea that expanded platform of service was where the idea came from. I clerked for her after I finished law school And that was kind of my path that I always thought I would go to. But getting to that point, you've got to do so much more stuff along the way. So it it was always in the back of my mind. Over time, I thought that's where I ultimately would like to be. And I still think that's where I'd like to end up eventually. Along the way, I think getting all kinds of experience has been um, really critical. And developing myself as a lawyer so that I can see what it's like to be in that part of the courtroom for when eventually, hopefully, I can get to the bench and serve in that sense.
0: So then tell me about when you were at a firm and you were just like, I'm out of here. I don't know if it happened that way, but tell me how it
1: happened. Um, I was only there for four years, but I wasn't getting the experience in courtrooms that I wanted. I didn't have a lot of client development support. Um, It wasn't a place that I felt like I was really thriving and I knew I had a lot of passion in me to do more and I just didn't know what to do with it. It was just like um, frenetic energy that I didn't know what to do with. And then I met um, a friend from law school, a remet, because we were, we'd been apart, I guess, five years. And he, I ran into him in court and i um, on one of my like eight court appearances. <laughs> and he said, you know, I have got this practice. I have a big book of business. Why don't you join me? And I thought this is an opportunity. And it was, I talked briefly with my mom about it. She was hesitant. She didn't want to not encourage me, but she was like, you need to really be sure you can pay all your bills because that's a big thing. And is this going to develop into something? And um, I just had a sense that I could make it into something if I really worked hard, because if the clients are there and you do the work, it's a one-to-one ratio. It seemed like, I now know it's much bigger than that to run your own law firm. Um, I worked with him for a year and then He was up in Newark. I grew up in Mercer County. I wanted to be back here. So after getting that experience working for him and then becoming his partner, I said, let me just open my own firm because I now have learned how to do it. I got very active in the state bar. And then I just opened my own firm for 10 years, um, built a really solid book of business. And then I decided to join my current firm because it became so large that I really needed a much bigger support staff and a bigger environment with other attorneys that I could just go down the hall to refer stuff to. Like I had a client that needed uh, IP assistance because there was an asset that was IP related. I needed a couple of pieces of real estate sold. So I could just have all my partners help me on the same case versus calling other people. So that's how I ended up here.
0: So when you had that job at the law firm for four years, was that right out of your clerkship? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you practiced law for four years and then went out on your own essentially. Yeah. So that's not really a long time. No, it was pretty scary. It, it was, was very scary. scary. That's really ballsy.
1: Yeah, I was. I was thirty-one.
0: How come you didn't think? Well, maybe I should just go work for another firm. Well, but, but it sounds like you did work for this other guy in in a certain capacity. Well, I,
1: I was his associate for about three or four months, and then he, I was ma- helping to manage stuff because things weren't going the way they needed to, and that was part of what he needed help. And then I asked him, what if we were partners? Because I'm already helping with the books and the this and the that. And he was like, yeah, that would help because I really don't want to do all this stuff. So we became partners. Um,
0: okay. So when you jumped ship at firm number one, I was thinking you left to go start your own firm. But at least you had like sort of like a little safety net kind of.
1: Yeah, because I didn't know that I wanted to have my own firm. I wanted to, um, I, I didn't realize I had such an entrepreneurial spirit at that point. I knew that I wanted to do more and I wanted to learn more because my courtroom time really wasn't where it needed to be. And he had so many files that of course he handed me the, the ones that were on fire. I didn't know it, but you learn with trial by fire. So I'd go into, you know, every case with, and I learned everything. I learned civil, I learned criminal immigration, family, I did everything. And then I finally backed away and said, I'm, I'm going to do family, which is what I really had been doing. I was a commercial litigator when I started at my first firm And then I became a family law attorney within a few months when I brought in a family law case. So I thought that I was going to go commercial litigation because that was sort of what you do. I was a paralegal in New York city after college thinking I'd try that route. I did internships during law school. Like I wanted to see everything before I decided family was it for me. And then I fell into it and that's where I ultimately ended up. But, um, The experience that I had at my first firm showed me that I needed to have more say over what I was doing in my life and career. And um, the experience with him was great because he just wanted to hand me everything. And I was like, yes, but it's a little bit too messy for me to just stay here and do everything. And it's an hour away from where I live. So um, your home life is really important. And I wanted to be closer to my parents and closer to just having the ability to not drive an hour up the turnpike every day.
0: Well, now that this, through this whole pandemic experience, I started working from home like a lot of other people and I had been commuting 40 minutes one way. And I really hated it, but it just seemed, you know, like that's what you do. That's what people do, right? Especially living in New Jersey. People commute to work. That's just how it is. Uh-huh. And then when we went remote, I was like, I'm never doing that again. There is no reason to drive 40 minutes or an hour to work. Yeah, Like here I am telling you, I will never do that again. If you ever find out I'm doing that, slap me. (laughs) Okay. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) You have my permission. Not too hard. (laughs) So I can absolutely relate to that. Um, and you know, I think obviously business has changed a lot. And I think a lot of the changes we're experiencing will be, will be permanent. They'll well, be I, I will tell
1: you, I got to go to court, like actual court, the courthouse last week. It was so much fun. I, I was in me. I'm like, I'm a nerdy lawyer. I was so excited to be there. I had to go read a DCPP report and just being in the building and seeing the old sheriff's officers. I was like, I'm so happy to be here. And I realized this is an extension of my office, but this is what makes me happy. This service. And this is like the performance, like people rehearse and rehearse for a play. The night of the performance is what they find the most exhilarating, just being there and then seeing the different sheriff's officers, the judge being in the courtroom. You know, I was there like three hours reading these reports and the sheriff's officers like practically falling asleep, but being in that courtroom made me feel something again. So I think every day driving into work is one thing, but being in a courthouse, I think also helps litigants to feel a certain sense of seriousness about their case and um, settling cases, especially like they're talking about not having anything be, but anything but remote until like a trial. And I think that might be like super scary for clients too, because the first time you're there, like for us, you walk in a courthouse and we're happy to be there. It's fine. Not a big deal. Um, but for them, it it might not go over so well if they're not there before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Obviously they're having a different experience, but I do think there's something about being heard or feeling like they're being heard where it can be helpful to actually have something where you're making a bit of a to do over it, like going to court, you know, that's a serious matter, right? You should dress professionally and you have, there's a certain way of addressing the court. And I think for some people anyway, they sort of need that. Yeah. I think a lot of people have this fantasy that they get their day in court.
1: They call they it that for a reason. Yeah. And I think that's that. what the the whole remote thing for everyone. Part of the problem is that the lack of being in an environment where this is the work environment versus this is the home environment, it changes the, I wouldn't say the seriousness of it, but the the intensity of what you're working on. So days where you're writing a brief or something like that, being at home. Yeah. But just being in an office, it's, it's a different level of focus. I think that happens and having clients come into an office, seeing your office space, being with you in person, um, the body language that you can watch, like you can't see a, a client's leg shaking under the table when you're talking to them on zoom. And when you ask a certain question, Are they telling you the truth when their leg is bouncing up and down, when they're talking about the assets that they happen to wire out of their bank account, like all these different things that, you know, I I think about stuff as I'm representing clients during the pandemic who I've never met. I'm like, this is the stuff why remote doesn't fully work because later on you find out about the stuff you think that question I'd asked, I now realize there's an actual issue with it. So I think a hybrid is the way to go because we don't need to all be together all the time. But, um, I do miss seeing people in person and that courthouse is so much fun.
0: (laughs) I I agree with you. And I I agree with what you said about being present and really being able to observe Uh body language more so than you can do with Zoom. Yeah. I want to ask you too, do you feel like certain people, not everybody, but certain people have kind of let themselves just be assholes because they have this attitude like, well, we're not going to court. Nobody can go to court. So what are you going to do?
1: Yeah. um, The funny thing is, I think people have that attitude because the court hasn't moved trials forward and the orders haven't said that it's happening. But that's actually not true, that there are judges that are 100 percent on their trial calendar. They're not backed up and people are surprised by that where they threaten, like, what are you going to do? We're not going to ever move forward with this. And you have no recourse. They come to find out that's not actually the case. Um, I really try hard when attorneys act like that. And they're just jerks about stuff. I pull it back and like disrupt that attitude with, why are you talking to me that way? Why are we acting like this? We're not the married couple. There's no reason to behave this way. Yeah, And they usually don't know how to handle that or they'll just keep going. And I do the same thing I do with clients. Like when you don't have this attitude, we can talk again because I don't need this right now. And I I don't want to deal with you.
0: Well, I was actually talking about the litigants being assholes, but since you mentioned <laughs> it, you know, right. <laughs> the attorneys I'm are myself. sometimes I'm my colleagues. <laughs> so tell me why you want to be a judge. I really want to help people.
1: It, that platform expands from, you know, the social work platform to the lawyer platform to this, This place where you can do so much for so many people, and for me also culturally, the the representation thing is such a big deal. Like if you see it, you can be it. When I saw Judge Holler Gregory, it was the first time I even thought that it was possible to be a judge and to serve in that capacity. And she'd always been in public service. She was a New York City high school teacher in the public school system before she ever went to law school. So, her whole career was in service, but it didn't, I was never exposed to it before. And the idea that people don't think about careers in public service and, you know, making our community representative of what the community looks like and consists of is only possible when we start being part of that. And if I were to do this, it would change the dynamic on the bench in New Jersey. There's not another South Asian female on the Superior Court bench, there's one tax court judge. But out of four hundred sixty three judges, I mean, that seems unusual. When about ten percent of the state is Asian.
0: Yeah, you're right. And you know, I think because I just grew up, you know, a white girl in New Jersey for the most part. um, For the most part, New Jersey. I mean, of course, I was always a white girl. But (laughs) I was
1: like, should we talk about this too? What?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was about to come out with a big secret. You know, I think that's something that uh, escaped me, And but I hear a lot from women of color is that they saw somebody who looks like them. Mm-hmm. And I'm appreciating that more and more that every little girl out there, whatever, you know, race she is or religion or what have you, um, it is important for them to see somebody who looks like their family. Yeah, doing all these big things. Like if you
1: look at a boardroom that is from like the 1950s or 60s and it's all just white men. And then you look in like the 70s and 80s and you see the women in their box suits and, and it's usually like a white woman, but you get excited. Like it's a woman, but it's a white woman. And then we identify you and I both that it's a woman, but why did it strike us? Because it wasn't that 50s, you know, um, mad men, I guess, is that the show? Yeah. About ad agency. That world changed around the 80s when women started coming out in their power suits. And But it was one woman, maybe two women. That world is not changing for women like me where I see the entire dynamic change. And as that happens more and more, the younger generation sees it as possible. Like, because I saw what I saw. I now think this is an option. Like Being a judge isn't even necessarily a checkoff box on what do you want to do when you grow up? It's you want to be a doctor, or a lawyer. This is I'm like being a judge, being the president, be like, these are the pinnacle of the career of choice, but it's not even suggested to most people. Why is that not the choice? It's more of a, a joke that people tell, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, this isn't a joke because it's leadership. It's, it's how we show that we want to make our communities better because of the platform you have to provide service. I mean, a lot of people say, why would you want to be a judge? It's going to be a pay cut. And I'm like, money is not the driving force behind being a lawyer, because believe me, the hours that you put in cannot possibly compensate for the amount of time you put into it. Um, But it's never about the money. It's really the dedication to helping people to get their lives in order, really.
0: You'll be such an asset in family because you've been doing it. Because we know that there are a lot of judges that sit in family that never practice. And that, that's not necessarily what makes them effective, but it definitely helps. I hope so. Yeah.
1: I mean, I could land there and just start working without the need for extra, extra training. Obviously, I don't know how to be a judge. But um, the background information, like knowing what certain acronyms mean and how the process works Criminal I, I did some of it long ago, but I'd be like, huh so we'll see what happens.
0: Well I hope if you have any juicy trials that you will alert me so that I can come and watch
1: <laughs> Well first I have to get through a process that's very long and get nominated by the governor There's a lot of stuff that's still ahead of me. We're not there yet, but yeah, still my dream and I
0: hope I get there. Well, thank you for uh, you know pointing that out but I have no doubt Shupti. it's gonna <laughs> happen. We're gonna manifest. With words, you're right, will manifest.
1: It will happen for me. Thank you for reminding me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I like to wrap up each interview with a Proust questionnaire. and You've probably seen me do it with other people, but it's basically just a series of quick questions intended to have quick answers to reveal something about your character. Oh, no. (laughs) What would you be doing if you weren't a lawyer?
1: I would love to be a dancer. Like a stripper? No. <laughs> a performance art, like, I don't know, not ballet, some kind of modern dance. I don't know. Just dance. Did
0: you physical. do that as a kid?
1: No, no, I wanted to. There were just uh, monetary restrictions. Traditional Indian dance is what I wanted to learn. But um, dance, like physical expression. I love that stuff. I dance in my house every night, like to music. It's, it's
0: never too late, Shupti. It might be a little late. <laughs> we'll no, see. we'll see. It's never too yeah. late. But yeah, I dance, interviewed yeah. two femme squires that do still do tap as yeah. adults. They still take tap lessons, and I think they even have, you know, performance events mm. too.
1: And so I will say, dance is kind of like the passion. But I think a chef would be the other thing. I would that, that might be more practical because I actually do cook. But okay, that would be the other thing I would do, and have a well, restaurant.
0: I like to eat, so. <laughs> Anytime you want to cook, I'm happy to come over and help. All right. Okay. If you won a hundred million dollars, money is no longer an issue. You don't have to worry about whatever job you're going to have because it has to pay the bills. What would you do?
1: Um, After paying off the debts of all the close friends and family that I have, I would open a charity that would have some kind of service to um, poor communities that Li- uplifted with education and housing and food, which are the basic needs I think everybody needs. I'd have to give a lot more thought and structure and, and lots of spreadsheets to figure it out in more detail, but that's what I would do with money.
0: Oh, I'd like that. Maybe you could still find a way to do that. Maybe. Or help someone do that. I'll call Bill Gates. <laughs> He's got There's the, There's the a few other billionaires around you could ask too. If you were writing life's instruction manual, what would be the first rule? Be kind. Yeah, even when you're out on the road and someone just cut you off and you want to flip them the bird. (laughs) Go ahead,
1: get to the accident before me. Go ahead, block the accident.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to be kinder. I don't always succeed, but I'm trying. Mm -hmm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Be more patient. Patient in terms of achieving goals?
1: I think with everything in life, I was always, I, I still need this more. I'm, I'm in a rush to get everything done. I'm in a rush to judging myself, in a rush to judging situations. If you just take a deep breath, the clarity of everything is really faster to come to you.
0: We're so easy to pass judgment on ourselves. I mean, we're, we're criticizing ourselves for being judgy with other people, but we do it to ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we got a lot to work on here. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Peace, like
1: inner peace. Um, Not having any concerns about my health or my money and expenses. And a group of excellent friends around me that bring me joy and who I can bring joy to.
0: Is there a certain time and place where you do feel really at peace? Like where it's even noticeable to you? Like, I just feel... Yeah. When,
1: when work is stable and managed and there's no crisis fire burning and there's happy clients. Like I, I feel that my clients are well-managed and they're like my children that are taken care of and happy. Um, and that I've, uh, the warm, the weather is warmer. I think I am a seasonal person. Um, but when the work is managed and then I've got some good friendships going on, it feels kind of hard to remember because of COVID. But during those times in my life where I've got you know dinner plans with someone, work is managed, I don't have to get up early the next day, that kind of stuff weekend time vacation yeah. Day.
0: and then I'm guessing floating around in that pool in the Caribbean. Uh, I,
1: Jamaica, I love it
0: with with I'm guessing a drink that might have an umbrella in it.
1: <laughs> I don't do umbrella drinks, but similar yeah okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, they can put an umbrella on a vodka martini. they can do they that. They could yeah. What is your greatest extravagance?
1: Jewelry. I like jewelry. Simple designs, but nice stuff. That's my biggest okay. extravagance.
0: And I, I like to keep these questions positive. Um, do you have a regret? Like what is your biggest regret if you have one?
1: That I didn't save more money over time, so I'd feel more secure financially sooner. I feel okay now, but I think I could have had this earlier in life.
0: Well, it all worked out, right? Yeah,
1: it did. Yeah, so, so it's not really regret, but I think yeah, if I had listened to mom, she would say, she had a plan for me. She's like, do this. And I was like, no, I want to spend everything right now. I should have listened to her.
0: I always say life is uncertain. Eat dessert first. I'm sure you've seen that with Facebook wisdom, but you know, life <laughs> is uncertain. Maybe that's just how I rationalize things. <laughs> Do you have a you know a sort of a mission statement or a motto for your life? I find a lot of them. Um, I do
1: LinkedIn mostly, and I find a lot of those kind of things on different things like the female lead. Um, I don't know if I follow just one, but making sure that like it takes what it takes to get it done and just do it because like the Nike thing. Th- those are the kind of things that I keep in my mind all the time because I feel a lot of burnout periodically. And I know that I have within me what I need to do to get it done. So just do what it takes, get it done. Because on the other side of that effort, I always find such happiness. So, yeah.
0: I, It reminds me of that saying, what you resist persists. Because uh-huh. I'll do that. You know, I've got things that have been on my to-do list far too long uh-huh. and I'll see it and be like, oh God. And it's like, why don't you just do it? Because then it won't be on the list anymore. That's what I always say to myself. Yeah, yeah. Still on the list, though. Shoot me. <laughs> okay, final question and the most important. Okay. What Muppet are you? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I feel like animal almost all the time. That's...
0: Yes, that's why we get along so well. I'm animal, too. <laughs> Definitely animal. Yeah,
1: but I love all of them. Like, yeah. I think Beaker is hilarious. Uh, Gonzo is awesome. But- yeah um animal feels like my my soul muppet
0: <laughs> i like animal animal never actually says words he's just like ah oh! all the time <laughs> right like that that's how I feel on the inside all the time, every day. Yeah,
1: there you go. Those are really fun questions. I'm gonna look those up myself and start asking myself every day.
0: I'll send you some. I should do like I should have a list and do a you know daily Proust questionnaire. That would be fun.
1: Yeah, they do that on Facebook, don't they? I got off Facebook years ago, but they used to do that kind of stuff. You're off the book. I've been off the book um, six eight years. I think I don't even know what my login is. I think if they keep it. You could go back in. Like people you, send me eight years ago. Remember this picture? And I look at myself like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. I got how it. do you remember people's birthdays? Um, <laughs> some of them are in my calendar. Some people remind me. I get people sending me their Facebook posts because of stuff going on in their lives. I just, yeah, I got off of it. LinkedIn is all I do.
0: Well, it's kind of like crack. It can definitely be a time suck, but it's very good for birthdays. You feel very special on your birthday because you get like <laughs> five million you know posts on your page. From people, though, honestly, from people that you probably don't hear from the rest of the year, <laughs> but well, still, still, it, it makes you feel good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I had fun. I hope you did too.
1: I did. This was really awesome. I appreciate you asking me to do it. And I'm sorry I didn't do it earlier. I should have <laughs>
0: I'm, agreed. I'm, to just, it I'm just teasing you. I think, you know, <laughs> the, the timing worked out and it was obviously the right time in the universe. That's the universe very decided. Right, right. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call, or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast@gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.